Excited Utterance, The Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode Number 60, Richard Rubin, Rethinking Rule 408. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Richard Rubin. Richard is the James Lewis Parks Professor of Law at the University of Missouri School of Law. Richard teaches in a variety of areas, including administrative law, election law, and conflict and dispute management. His primary area of research is in conflict and dispute resolution, and he is most recently focused on mindfulness training for law and other professional students. Our podcast today features Richard's new article, Rethinking the Law of Legal Negotiation, Confidentiality under Federal Rule of Evidence 408 and Related State Laws. The article was published in the Boston College Law Review. As its name implies, the article looks at Rule 408, the rule governing the admissibility of compromise offers and statements made during compromise negotiations. Richard argues that since 1975, when the rules were enacted, the world of dispute resolution has evolved considerably. Back in the 1970s, the dominant model of dispute resolution was adversarial bargaining, in which parties closely held information and settlement was about bargaining over economic terms. By contrast, today's negotiation norms stress problem-solving. Clients and their attorneys disclose information and then seek synergies. The current Rule 408 is therefore a poor fit for the modern negotiation context, threatening to undermine a judicial system critically dependent on private settlement. Richard explores how we got where we are today, and offer some proposals for the future. Richard, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. It's my pleasure to be here, Ed. Thank you for inviting me. You begin your article with some preliminary definitions, which I think, and obviously you think, are important for understanding the paper. So let me give you an opportunity to make those definitions and those distinctions to start. And here, specifically, I'm talking about the differences between compromise, settlement, and negotiation, and then maybe also confidentiality, privacy, and admissibility. Yes, this is a bit of a bramble bush in the law. All these terms mean similar things, but they're not really the same, and their differences are significant. And that is itself significant because we often use them interchangeably, and it's just not the case. So, for example, compromise, settlement, and negotiation, often used interchangeably, but in fact, compromise, at least as defined in Rule 408, is really limited to exchanges of economic value, very limited definition, whereas settlement is a much broader term. It can include any reconciliation of differences between disputing parties, which can be economic, it can be non-economic. A settlement can include both economic and non-economic features. And then finally, negotiation is the process by which compromise and settlement are achieved. And so while the three of them seem to be similar, they're in meaningful ways quite different. 
And so it's important to be clear about what it is that you're talking about when you're talking about the admissibility of, of evidence. Similarly, with regard to confidentiality, privacy, and admissibility, again, these things are often spoken of interchangeably, and yet they do have much more precise meanings that are significant from the standpoint of applying Rule 408. So, for example, privacy. Well, privacy refers to the ability in a dispute resolution process like negotiation, it refers to the ability of the parties to keep out third parties from that settlement discussion. It could be, you know, another interested party, it could be the media. And to the extent that the parties want to keep their negotiations private, they can do so. This is a matter of contract. Admissibility refers to something completely different. It refers to whether that evidence in that negotiation process is subject to disclosure in a subsequent legal proceeding if the negotiation fails. That is a question of law, not a question of contract as between the parties. And so both of these together are collectively what we think of as confidentiality. In other words, the ability of the parties to speak candidly in the context of a private communication uh, between them about their disputes without fear that later what they've said and the evidence that they've produced will somehow become admissible in a later legal proceeding should the negotiation fail. So it's really, really important to understand precisely what you're talking about for purposes of considering the, their, their legal consequences. So I spent a fair amount of time on this because it's a critical element of the foundation. Let's get to the meat of the matter. You suggest that Rule 408, which really seems very straightforward on paper, 408 ends up being complicated by the case law. Can you tell us a little more about just how courts have interpreted 408 in more complicated ways or more narrow ways than we might expect? Well, I might take some issue with the assertion that Rule 408 is relatively straightforward on paper. It has gone through three different versions now, enactments, and I agree that it's clearer now, but initially it was barely comprehensible. Clearly, the you know the product of committee work balancing com- competing interests, and as a result of that, it was extremely narrow and extremely precise if you could read it. It is, I think, a little bit more straightforward now, but the language of it is still pretty precise in terms of the rule of compromise. And so the effect of that has been to give the courts a great deal of latitude with regard to interpreting it. Because, you know, conceptually, it seems to be broad that legal negotiations are confidential and not subject to subsequent admissibility. On the other hand, the rule is drafted very, very narrowly. Now, what's driving the whole thing, the real problem, is what I call the fundamental tension in confidentiality and and more particularly admissibility with regard to dispute resolution processes. On the one hand, These processes are embedded within a legal system that is predicated on the principle uh, that the purpose of trial is to find out the truth about what happened and that the law, both parties, have the right to every man's evidence to prove their case. On the other hand, dispute resolution processes, in particular here, negotiation, 
really go the other way. In other words, they require the confidentiality of the proceedings in order to encourage the parties to be candid in their communications. And it is this candor, it's the ability of the parties to discuss their interests, their needs, their concerns, and so on. It's that candor that that actually makes settlement possible. And so the courts have been really grappling with this fundamental tension, and not surprisingly, they're courts and they're judges seeking to do justice in the individual cases before them. They tend to interpret ambiguity in favor of admissibility to give the parties their options. So as a result of this, the courts have, with regard to the text, come up with all kinds of different conditions and tests for admissibility under the precise language of the text. They have also come up with their own exceptions, you know, basically common law type exceptions. And as a result of that, this rule, which was really designed uh, by Congress, there's really not much disagreement about this. There's this rule that was designed by Congress to provide a, a safe space for parties to settle their disputes without the need for subsequent adjudication, that goal has been substantially compromised by the judicial narrowing, if you will, uh, of an already narrow rule. So let me put it slightly differently. It seems that in the paper, you're suggesting that 408, either as it sits on the page or as it has been interpreted by the courts, is in fact too narrow to cover what is needed to promote effective negotiations. Why is that? How has it been narrowed? And what's the problem with Rule 408? It has been narrowed by courts seeking to do justice in the cases before them. When a court is looking at a claim of excluding otherwise relevant evidence, their general predisposition and a fundamental principle of evidence is that the parties are entitled to the evidence that they need to prove their cases. So, for example, with regard to compromise discussion, the language of the rule refers specifically to compromise discussions. That's what it applies to. That is what Rule 408 applies to. However, a compromise discussion is very narrow. It is only, as, at least as the cases have interpreted it, it's only about the exchange of economic value in the context of a pending legal dispute, okay? And so as a result of that, anything else that was covered in the course of that settlement, non-economic values, things like apologies, changes of conditions, delivery dates, you name it, none of that would be protected as pursuant to a compromise discussion because the courts have viewed that narrowly. And they viewed it narrowly to focus only on the discussions regarding the exchange of economic value and to the exclusion of all other issues. So all other issues are admissible. Now, most attorneys and parties wouldn't realize this because as much as anything else, Federal Rule 408 and related state laws speak to a, a general norm and a general expectation. And, and the problem here is that the norm and the expectation do not line up with the positive rule. What's the effect in practice that you've observed? 
if attorneys are not aware of it, then presumably they are actually just putting their clients a little bit in danger here, but you're not really chilling the discussion. Have you actually seen discussions being curtailed because attorneys are worried about how 408 is going to apply? Like most scholars, I don't have the opportunity to directly observe many live legal negotiations. I, I'm, I'm not invited into those conversations. But I can say that a fairly constant concern that I hear expressed by practitioners who are engaged in legal negotiation is a concern about how much disclosure they are going to make during the course of that settlement discussion. And this is where a change, sort of a social change, has particularly significant impact. The way that we negotiate now, the nature of negotiation now is very different than back in 1976, and deliberately so. You know, back in 1976, when 40408 was codified, the negotiation process was basically a tug of war, a bag of tricks, and a battle to see whose position would, would triumph. And in the later 1970s, largely out of Harvard, you know, a new paradigm came forward, sometimes called principled negotiation, which didn't focus as much on the positions of the parties, but focused instead on the underlying needs, concerns, interests that the parties have as a basis for negotiation. So the difference between these two models could not be more dramatic. In one, in the earlier model, when you're battling over positions, you want to withhold disclosure of anything that could possibly be damaging. On the other hand, when you are working beneath positions to the level of interests and needs and concerns, this is the grist that makes it possible for parties to come to mutually agreeable settlements. Disclosure of information, including information that could be damaging if it came out at trial, is a critical, the critical part of that process. And for the last 20 years or so, law schools around the country have embraced this model of negotiation and have taught it. So to the extent that those who have come out of law schools in the last 20 years or at least familiar with and may even try to engage in this, in this approach to negotiation, they are putting their clients at risk because it necessarily requires the disclosure of information that could be damaging if it comes out at trial. What has to happen to Rule 408 to address this new, more modern, principled negotiation format? Do we have to expand our view of what the compromise is? And is there a way to do it where there are still limits on how broad 408 is? Well, you know, I think that, you know, there are a number of different ways to fix Rule 408. You know, one, one way is what I would call the Band-Aid approach. And that is to somehow fix all the little problems that have come up under, in other words, all of the, the little holes in the shield of the settlement space. I think that that approach will only make a bad situation worse by making it even more technical and less intuitive. I think the real answer to the problem is to elevate 
Rule 408 from what is sometimes called a quasi-privilege or um, sort of privilege to a real privilege. Under a quasi-privilege, it sort of acts as a rule of court and you know neither party really needs to invoke it. Uh, they can, but they don't really need to. The evidence doesn't come in theoretically, but in fact, you know, as as I've demonstrated, it does again, again, and again. And that quasi-privilege was a part of the compromise between uh, competing interests in the fundamental tension that that I described earlier between the court's desire to admit evidence as as necessary to prove our cases and the need for the negotiation process for confidentiality and an admissibility to encourage the disclosure of of the information that's necessary to actually resolve a legal dispute. And so the policy hasn't changed. I think that it's unquestioned that the purpose of Rule 408 was to create this space for settlement. The problem was in the execution of that policy by treating it as a quasi-privilege. And here by quasi-privilege, I'm just going to give a little specificity here. What you mean is currently 408 bars this material for purposes of proving the validity of the claim, and you can skirt that rule by suggesting other purposes. This is how specialized relevance rules work. You're suggesting a privilege meaning much more along the lines of attorney-client, which is any discussions during this settlement negotiation are going to be barred regardless of the purpose for which they're being offered. So much more like um, Rule 410, which is the rule against discussions during plea bargaining. Yes, that's exactly right. And, And I think that is what Congress intended with Rule 408. I think that is what the negotiation process needs. I think it's what the parties expect out of their process, that the statements that they make in those proceedings will not later come back to be used against them in a um, court of of law. I think the answer is to elevate it to a privilege, which requires, uh, which is not self-executing, it requires a party to assert it. And the parties, if they want the evidence in, can waive the privilege jointly but it requires a party to assert it, and there are going to be exceptions to it. You know, some of these exceptions that we found, such as the the statutory exception for otherwise discoverable evidence, make perfect sense. In other words, the idea is that you don't want to use the negotiation to hide evidence that would otherwise be discoverable. And so privileges, while they're stronger, they're not absolute necessarily, at least not what I'm proposing here, not absolute in the sense of prohibiting any other evidence, but rather they state a broad principle of inadmissibility subject to specific and narrowly tailored exceptions where the policy behind the exception is greater than the policy supporting the confidentiality of the negotiation process. Here I'm going to ask you a concern that I usually raise about evidentiary rules that are quite broad or quite protective. Listening to you talk about it, I think it all seems good. We like settlement. We think that people will talk more freely and it will be easier to settle cases if we protect that sphere from intrusion by the legal process. But privileges or any of these broad exclusionary rules always give me some cause for concern. And here I'm in many ways referencing Justice Scalia's remarks in Jaffe v. Redmond, which was the case about the psychotherapist-patient privilege. 
And his complaint was that, you know, there's always some special interest group. In this case, it's mediators or the parties that are involved in these kinds of processes that will benefit tremendously. And they advocate quite strongly for having a strong privilege. But there's rarely anyone speaking on behalf of the truth, or at least truth in the legal process. Do we really need the strong medicine here? Why should we feel that this is a good balance or a good trade-off to say, we're actually going to completely close off any inquiry into this settlement negotiation at the expense of potentially accurate results at trial? Yeah. And I think that is a, I think it's a fair question, but I think it is readily resolved by understanding, first of all, that negotiation is not a truth-seeking process. Trial is a truth-seeking process. And so parties in a, certainly in an interest-based negotiation are going to be talking about a variety of things. Some of it could be speculation. Some of it could be preferences. Some of it, perceptions, opinions, things that really are not even valuable, much less reliable, if later introduced in a court. And yet, in a negotiation, are perfectly appropriate because negotiation is a process for reconciling competing interests. So negotiation itself is not a truth-seeking process. And, and with 408, you know, we do have a policy decision made by Congress, made by every state in this country, that we want to protect that space. And so the other point is that there is not an interest group here benefiting by 408. It's, it's not mediators. The mediation privilege is, is very different to the extent that it's been codified in the Uniform Mediation Act. You know, that's different. There's not an interest group here. I mean, here the interest really is the process itself. And that was what Congress de determined, was that the process itself, and, and we all have an interest in that process, including courts. Courts need for that process to be valued because, as I'm sure you know, Ed, that the overwhelming majority of cases are actually settled. And we need to have faith in those processes to allow them to work. And I would submit that 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 the inadmissibility of evidence uh, that would be adduced or statements as evidence that would be adduced from those processes is necessary in order for those processes to work. People simply will not disclose potentially, and they should not disclose potentially damaging evidence otherwise. Final question for you. What's next? In our discussion before the interview, you talked about how you've spent a long time thinking about these issues about Rule 408. Are you planning additional work in this space? This is actually the last of a series of articles that I have done on confidentiality and admissibility in a variety of dispute resolution processes. It's possible that I might come up with a unified theory of confidentiality and dispute resolution processes, but... Uh, Time will uh, just have to tell. Well, Richard, thanks for making this important link between the world of dispute resolution and Rule 408. Great having you on the show. Great uh, to be on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. Richard's article raises some interesting concerns about Rule 408. If courts have an excessively cramped view of what a compromise negotiation exactly is, then we may be chilling settlement discussions. And this problem has only become more pronounced 
as negotiation styles have evolved and our justice system has become more and more dependent on settlement. Of course, we could solve this problem by just encouraging courts not to have such a cramped view of Rule 408's scope. But Richard has bigger plans. In his paper, he proposes a broad conditional privilege for settlement negotiations. As our discussion suggested, I think what he's really looking for is not a conditional privilege, but something similar to Rule 410, the rule governing pleas and plea discussions. Rule 408 is like most specialized relevance rules in that it only prohibits the use of certain kinds of evidence for a specific purpose. In this case, the use of compromise offers and statements made during compromise negotiations for either proving the validity of a claim or for impeachment. Rule 410, though, is different. Rule 410 bars all statements made during plea negotiations for any purpose, except for a few narrowly circumscribed ones. So it goes without saying that Rule 410, or a Rule 408 with a 410 structure, is much more protective. Now, the discussion prompts the question, why the lack of symmetry between Rule 408 in civil cases and Rule 410 in criminal ones? Traditionally, the answer is that there's more at stake in criminal cases, and so to overcome any potential chilling effect and to encourage pleas, we need to protect criminal defendants more. And maybe that's right. But maybe, given that modern civil negotiations are complicated and require a broader exploration of needs and solutions, perhaps we need to think about a Rule 410-type structure for civil settlement negotiations as well. I remain skeptical. Part of it is my own personal aversion to keeping information from the legal process. As I argued in the interview, it's easy to see the benefits of confidentiality, but it's also easy to forget the costs that it imposes on accuracy and transparency. Part of my skepticism also comes from the fact that almost all of the evidentiary rules are structured like Rule 408, prohibiting certain types of evidence for certain purposes. Rules with blanket prohibitions, like 410, those have often resulted in unintended consequences because their structure is anomalous. Finally, maybe I'm just not on board with promoting more settlement. Seems to me that settlement has become so pervasive that we've lost the disciplining function of trial. Maybe we should start encouraging trial for a change. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Aaron Park Carranza and Megan Cole, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.